Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. If you're here Sunday, you know we joined Jesus and His apostles at Caesarea Philippi where Jesus asked that all-defining question, Who do you say that I am? And Peter gave that great answer. But you may have caught that that began in verse 13. We skipped the first 12 verses of Matthew 16. But we're not going to touch those verses tonight. We're going to go back to those on Sunday. As we uh, attempt to bring another um, prophecy update. Talk a little bit about what's going on in the world. And what we're seeing in the world around us and the times in which we live. So we're going to go on from there. We'll begin our study in about verse 21. We're going to start back a bit and I'm going to pray first. Before I do that, I just want to encourage you all tonight not to hear a Bible study. When I look at the words of what Jesus is about to teach His apostles and and, and pour over them through this week, I'm struck by how we've watered them down because we've heard them so much in the church. And I, I pray that they will hit us with full force tonight. Even if that shakes us to the core, because these words define then the person who has chosen to follow after Jesus Christ. They define how we are to live. So we're going to look at these things, and I invite you. I, I just think across the years of teaching the Bible, there are so many times where my heart is just bursting that we get beyond words on a page. And that we actually hear Jesus speaking into our hearts. And that's, that's my prayer tonight. In fact, I'm going to pray that right now. Father, will you speak these words into our hearts deep. Embed them, Lord, in a place where they will take root. And where we can learn, not just learn, Father, where we can be changed and transformed by the renewing power of your words. And Jesus, I ask that You will pour out on us tonight the same Spirit that spoke these words. Your Spirit, Lord. And convict us. Motivate us each in our lives to step out truly as disciples of Yours, as followers of Yours. Bless Your Word tonight, Father. And seed it into us, I pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, beginning back in verse 15, Jesus asked the question, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He says you're blessed because you've received this revelation. He doesn't say you're blessed because you're Peter. Because of who you are intrinsically, he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because... My Father revealed this to you. You've just received a great blessing, Peter. Anytime we speak a word of faith, gang, we have been blessed by the Father to speak that word. And so Jesus says, blessed are you. He says, I also say to you that you're Peter, Petros, pebble, and upon this rock, Petra, massive bedrock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. We talked about that on Sunday. He's speaking of his own death. Even my death cannot cause the church to cease. Even your deaths, followers of mine, will not cause this thing to cease once the ball gets rolling. 
He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words, what you bind on earth already was bound in heaven. What you loose on earth already was loosed in heaven. You're just acting under the authority of your Father. Again, we talked about that in depth on Sunday. And then He warned the disciples that they should tell no one that He was the Christ. My friends, the declaration of faith is a clear prerequisite to seeing Jesus as He truly is. You have to declare faith in Him before you get to understand His nature. Before you really begin to see Him as He is. It all begins with that declaration of faith. Until we have confessed Jesus as the Christ... Until we have declared Him as Lord over our lives, at best, our spiritual sight is limited. But in most cases, we're walking blind. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, "...the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God." If you're unbelieving, you don't see the gospel. You don't get it. You don't understand it. It starts with that declaration of faith. That verse in 2 Corinthians explains so much to me the blind confusion of the world we live in today. How people can continue in the deception around us. I, I watch the news and day in and day out I am shocked at how blind our world is to injustice. How blind our world is to absolute deception and it's because our world is an unbelieving world. But Peter's just made the greatest confession of faith by revelation that a person can make. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And with that profession of faith, Peter is about to see Jesus because he made that profession. And don't miss the timing of all this. Chapter 16 comes before chapter 17. <laughs> I know, it's amazing. But don't miss this because Jesus, but Peter first had to make the profession of faith to then see the revelation of Jesus as He really is, which we'll see in chapter 17. Faith comes first. But the declaration of faith does something else for us, gang. It leads us directly to the cross. You cannot declare faith in Jesus Christ as Lord without being drawn to the cross. Peter himself would write later in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, You have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. And in verse 24 of 1 Peter chapter 2, he went on to write that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. We declare faith and it allows us to see Jesus as he is. We declare faith and it takes us to the cross to join him there as he's about to ask his apostles to do. Now with... Peter's original confession at that rock at Banyas, Caesarea Philippi, Jesus immediately began to openly talk about his upcoming death for the first time. He had hinted at it before. In fact, back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus said, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What does that mean? Well, we know, we understand. But when Jesus said the words, it was mysterious. It was unclear. What exactly does that mean? In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said to the Pharisees, the Jewish people, He said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. They didn't get it at all. They said, what? It took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? 
But, John tells us, he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So, Jesus had spoken in parables, in rhymes, in riddles. He had not spoken blatantly until now. But as we begin in verse 21, and you see this, after after Peter's confession, from that time... Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He is no longer mincing words. Time is short. And from this day forward, Jesus is absolutely clear with His apostles what's coming. They should have known. He tells them this in no uncertain terms. Now, what comes out of Peter's mouth next is perhaps unexpected... It tells us in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) Ah, Peter. Saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter epically confesses Jesus as the Christ. And almost in the next breath, he immediately gets off course. In verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man. So much for the infallible Pope. If the Pope is infallible, which the Catholic Church teaches, Peter just blew it big time. The first words out of his mouth, confession of faith. The very next sentence, he's rebuking his Lord. That's not something you ought to do. I don't know if you've ever gotten to that place where you're so comfortable with Jesus, you find yourself rebuking Him. Be careful, (laughs) please. He is still Lord, Creator, the Divine God of the entire universe. Man, it's moments from this gloriously revealed confession that Peter becomes the unwitting mouthpiece of Satan, of the adversary. How quickly Peter's divine illumination becomes the devil's interest as he slips into human thinking. It's the devil's interest because the devil, from the days of the temptation... When Jesus spent those 40 days in the wilderness, what was the devil trying to get Jesus to do? Don't go to the cross. I got an easy out for you. Bow down and worship me right now, and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. You can have it all. Shortcut. You don't have to go to the cross. And now Peter is speaking on behalf of Satan, saying, don't go to the cross. It should never be. God forbid that you should do this thing. It's human thinking. Can anyone relate? To Peter. We can so quickly bless the Lord and declare Jesus and almost in the next breath find ourselves cursing. In fact, James says in James chapter 3, verse 9, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father and with the tongue we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing my brethren. These things ought not to be this way. Now, I don't mean any disrespect to Peter. Peter gets a bad rap in the church. He gets picked on a lot because it's fun to do because he's so much like we are. And we like to pick on people who are like us to take the attention off of us and put it on to them. Well, here's Peter, this man of great conviction, incredible passion. He said what people were afraid to say. He was always ready to step out in faith, even to the point ultimately of his own martyrdom on a cross, which tradition tells us was done upside down because Peter didn't think himself worthy to be crucified the way Jesus was. However, even after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Peter and the other apostles in Acts chapter 2, even after this point, as Jesus is a Spirit-filled, powerful man in the church, 
Peter remained fallible. Peter continued to blow it. In fact, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul is writing and he says, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and to hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Peter was playing it both ways. Peter knew that God had opened up the gospel to the Gentiles, but when the Jews showed up, especially those who were really critical of the Gentiles, Peter backed off. Oh, Peter. Not the infallible man that maybe some would think, but a man just like us. And we are so like Him. Brothers and sisters, when our flesh overtakes our spirit, when the things of man impose on the things of God, it is time to realign. And I don't know about you, but this this automobile needs realignment on pretty much a daily basis. Without the realignment of the Scriptures, without the realignment of prayer and time spent with the Lord, I get off track instantly. I begin to drift. I had a little car when Cheryl and I were first married, a little Toyota Corolla, and it was all I could do to keep that thing aligned. I mean, it was almost after coming from having it aligned and getting on the freeway and driving that instantaneously I would be headed off to the left or headed off to the right. It's such a picture of how we live our lives. We journey, gang, in this life, and we have a tendency to drift right or left and to get off of the straight path. And we need realignment. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 20 says, Your teacher will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. And John wrote in 2 John verse 6, This is love, that we walk according to His commandments. Listen to that. He doesn't say this is law, that we walk according to His commandments. He says this is love. We're in a totally different place, not under law, but under liberty. And in liberty, when Jesus gives a command, I go, yes, Lord, and I walk in it because it keeps me on the straight path. John said, this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Spiritual realignment, gang, depends on these two things, constancy in prayer and consistency in the Word. And I can't overstate it. I know, Rick, because you said it last Wednesday, and I think you said it Sunday morning and the week before that. I know. Be in the Word. Be in prayer. Stay aligned. Jesus said to the church in Sardis, the dead church, Revelation chapter 3, verse 3, Remember what you have received and heard, and keep it. And repent. That is turn. Get straight with God. Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Stick to the straight path. Stay the course. That's the deal. I'm telling you this because Peter just made the great confession and immediately gets off track. And so what does Jesus do? He immediately starts to realign Peter and the arrest of the apostles. Before we read that, one other thing here. Just because a well-meaning brother or sister like Peter comes to you and says, God forbid that you should do such a thing, be careful. Just because someone's a believer in Christ does not mean they're right. Does not mean they're correct. You have to weigh all things with the Lord. The Lord may tell you something that another brother or sister in Christ has not heard. They might not have received the call that you've been given by the Lord. I've seen people called to go into the mission field and the entire family freaking out. What are you talking about? That's, That's dangerous. Don't you know what's going on in that country? But if you've received the call from the Lord, 
Be careful when someone comes up to you and says, God forbid that you should do this or that or the other. God may not be forbidding it. Following Jesus guarantees there's going to be hardship, turmoil, even danger, which is why it's so critical for us to remain aligned with the will and purposes of our eternal Father rather than the natural man. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And the Lord is spiritual. Jesus says that. If you're going to worship the Lord, you have to worship Him in spirit and in truth because He is spirit. And that's what He's drawing us to. Well, listen to the realigning words of Jesus as He turns to His voice. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. How many times have you heard that verse in your life? Now some of you, maybe if you're a newer Christian, haven't heard it a lot, a few times, once or twice. Some of you, if you've been in the church a long time, like I have, you've heard it over and over and over, and you've seen it on bumper stickers and t-shirts, and you've heard it again on posters and on the radio. Don't miss what he's saying. Jesus is saying, if you want to come after me, if you want to be like me, I'm going to give you three ways. And it begins with denying yourself. This does not mean giving up a favorite TV show for a month. It does not mean giving up chocolate or swearing off steak. When Jesus says deny yourself, He is not talking about denying yourself something. He's talking about denying yourself. It's dethroning you and enthroning Him. It's removing yourself from the equation and saying, I have no rights here. I deny even that which I should in all other circumstances, be able to do. I deny it in favor of Jesus Christ. He is Lord. What He says goes, deny self. Moses understood that. Now, I don't know if we would have done what Moses did, but the Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews 11.24 that when Moses had grown up, he refused to be called son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. I don't know if I could have done that. To be a young man and grow up in the palace and have everything at my fingertips, to snap my fingers and whatever I wanted, I got. You know what I would have rationalized? I'm almost positive I would have said... Lord, I want to follow you, but I can do better work right here in the palace. You know. Because I've got everything at my disposal. What good am I down in the mud pits making bricks with the Jews? Let me stay here and I will work for you in this role. And that's not denying self. Moses denied himself everything. Laid it all down and followed after the Lord. Deny yourself. It's the process of self-removal from any rights, privileges, freedoms, or liberties for the sake of Jesus Christ. But someone might take advantage of me. They might. But I could lose my position at work. You might. Well, with that kind of thinking, Rick, I could lose my shirt. You could. You could. You could even lose more. The second thing Jesus says is take up your cross. This phrase has been so weakened by our culture it hardly holds meaning. Well, that's my cross to bear. You've heard it said. You Maybe you've even said it. I hurt my knee skiing back when I was a youth pastor. 
showing off, doing stupid stuff, and ended up off the path, down the hill, in a snowbank, with no one around. I thought I was going to die there. I really did. And I crawled back up there and skied back down the mountain on one ski. And for years, that knee hurt. It was my cross to bear. See, people say this kind of thing. That's that's my cross to bear. You want to know what your cross means? It means dying. I mean, literally dying. The idea of the cross to the apostles there was brutal death. This is before, obviously, Jesus' crucifixion. But it was well known and understood among Jews that the cross was the cruel tool of Rome for execution. Take up your cross? What are you saying, Jesus? During the Roman occupation of Judea, upwards of 200,000 Jews were crucified on wooden crosses. Jesus was not the only one. 200,000, and the apostles saw it. They would line the roads going in and out of Jerusalem with crosses with people dying on them who were considered to be dangerous to the Roman cause, insurgents, criminals, whatever. It would be a common sight, a horrific sight. But for Jesus to say, take up your cross was for Jesus to invite the apostles to join Him in His death. To join Him in His ultimate, complete, and abject rejection by the world. To be an outcast in some circles. To look foolish in others. To bear the cross of painful rejection. Are you willing to do that? That's what He's asking. That's huge. And Jesus said, follow Me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Follow you where, Lord? Where did Jesus go? From this point forward, remember, the point was the cross. He was going to die. Follow me. The direction of your life, if you choose to follow Jesus, and I know this is not a great statement of evangelism, now this isn't the kind of thing that's going to draw masses of people to the cause, but the direction of your life when you choose to follow Jesus is to the cross. It's to die to yourself. And not just in some esoteric spiritual way. Gang, there are very real implications for us here in the willingness to die to ourselves. And I am not speaking this as one who has done it. Speaking this as one who is considering it. What does this mean, Lord? How far are you willing to go? Follow me, he says. Follow you where? Well, Jesus said the wind blows wherever it wishes, John 3, verse 8. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. We don't know where we're going. We just know we're following Him. All we really know is He's driving, and that's good enough for us. So wherever He's going, that's where I want to be. Whatever that looks like, that's where I want to go. Back in the 1990s, I was doing youth ministry in Southern California, and there was a friend of mine who every year did the Summer Mystery Tour for his youth group. And I kid you not, hundreds of kids signed up for this thing. The mystery tour was set up such that the parents came to a meeting and were given an itinerary, but the itinerary was not shared with the kids. And for 350 400 bucks, which in the 90s was more than it is now, he would take these kids, put them on a bus in the morning, and they'd take off for two weeks having no idea where they were going. And they loved it. I was so jealous as a youth pastor because he had the biggest turnout for that summer mystery tour. Because they didn't know where they were going. All they knew was that it was going to be about Jesus. He would do some of the coolest things. He'd take those kids, take them to Magic Mountain, and they'd get there, 
And he'd give them each 20 bucks and say, all right, enjoy your day. Oh, oh, wait a minute, you have a rule today. You have to find someone who, um, who you don't know and buy their lunch. Or he'd say, for the first four hours, you can go into Magic Mountain, but you can't go on any rides. What's the point? And then he'd come bring them back and have a Bible study about, I don't know, disappointment or discouragement or something like that. <laughs> but by the end of that two-week mystery tour, they had a fantastic time, and every summer kids signed up for it right and left, because that's where the adventure lies. I know Jesus, I may not know where He's going, but that's cool. Because I know wherever it is, it's going to be awesome. Several of your ladies are about to enter into the uh, Experiencing God Bible study, if I'm correct. It's going to blow your minds. Because the whole point is about going where He is. It's attaching yourself to what He's doing. It's looking for where He's stirring up the dust and joining Him there. And that's exciting. Follow me, He says. Verse 25, Jesus continues to realign the apostles saying, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? James said in James chapter 4, verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus is talking about friendship with the world here. He's talking about hanging with worldly things, about clinging to worldly desires and wants, and He's saying, man, give that stuff up because you're just going to lose your life pursuing it. It's going to eat you alive. And there's no bailout for the soul but one. I think the wording is interesting here. Notice, notice in verse 25, 26 actually, the last part of 26, He doesn't say, what will a man get in exchange for his soul? He says, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The point is not about selling your soul to the world. It's about saving your soul. The idea is not giving up your soul to get something else. It's a huge eternal fact that the human soul is lost. And there's nothing in man that can buy it back. Listen to that again. What will you give in exchange for your soul? What what, what do you have to give to save yourself? And the answer is nada. Nothing zilch, zippo. I got nothing to redeem back what was lost the second I entered into sin. I can't buy myself back. What do we have that's precious enough to redeem a soul lost to sin? Jesus is saying if you continue down the road of spiritual bankruptcy, which is the choice you make when following the world, You'll find yourself in that place. You have nothing big enough to buy back your soul. It must be bought by Jesus. Which is why, again, the confession of Christ is so powerful and so important. It is Him. It is Him. It is Him. It's all Jesus. He is Lord. He is Savior. has nothing to do with me. He chose to do it. I just accepted that. And that is the great motivation to deny myself, take up my cross and follow Him. The great motivation is Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And in that confession, now I can step down this road. I'm not going to be perfect at it, but I can begin the process of denying self, taking up the cross, and following Him because He is my Lord. Verse 27, He says... 
for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. When I first started learning about grace, that verse upset me. Anytime Jesus said, I'm going to repay you, I'm going to pay you back based on what you've done, I would go, oh man, but that doesn't jive with grace. Actually, it jives perfectly with grace. There's one deed that I can perform, that I can commit, that will gain me entrance into eternity with Jesus. You know what that is? Confessing Jesus as the Christ. And so, He is going to repay that deed. Jesus, when He comes back, is going to repay me for that deed, for claiming Him as Lord and Savior. And the payment, the reward, is worth it. And it's wonderful. Now, continuing into verse 17, verse 28 of chapter 16 is a segue. Jesus is about to speak a word of prophecy, and we will see it partially fulfilled in the following verses in chapter 17. Verse 28, chapter 16, Truly, He says, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. It's a verse that confused some, because those standing there obviously were the apostles, and they're all dead. Jesus' kingdom hasn't come yet, has it? We're about to get a preview of the coming attraction. Verse 1, chapter 17, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Amazing. The Mount of Transfiguration. There's been some debate about the actual location of this mountain in Israel. Tradition and tourism point to a humpback hill there in the Jezreel Valley of the Lower Galilee called Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor, if you look at it, it's interesting. It does look kind of like a camel's hump there in the, in the midst of the, of the valley. And you Bible students may remember that there was a battle fought there. Actually, several battles were fought there. But Deborah and Barak, not Obama, fought there against the Canaanites in Judges chapter 4, wiped him out, Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is also a, a, a hill there, a large hill that overshadowed a busy crossroad of the historical Via Maris, which means the way of the sea. And it was a crossroad by which the kings of, of Mesopotamia and the north would come down and, and it would meet with Egypt along the sea and it would cut in right there at Mount Tabor and head on up toward Damascus. So it was a busy area, highly trafficked, But Mount Tabor is not the most likely candidate for the Mount of Transfiguration. In fact, it's very unlikely that it was Mount Tabor at all. I'm convinced it was Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon in the far north of Israel. I'll tell you why. Mount Hermon is the closest mountain to Caesarea Philippi, which is where Jesus and the Apostles just were. If you get to Caesarea Philippi, you can look up to the the northeast from there and see Mount Hermon looming in the distance. I think it's likely they headed on in that direction. In fact, Matthew chapter 17, verse 1 tells us again that he took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, Mount Tabor is barely a mountain, 1,350 feet in elevation. Mount Hermon stands 10,000 feet in elevation. It's the tallest mountain in Israel. It is a high mountain. It fits the bill. And it also would be isolated enough for Jesus to continue doing what I think he's doing here. I think from the moment that he took the apostles up to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus was taking them on a retreat. 
on a getaway to get them aligned with the purposes of his father. So they go on up there to Mount Hermon. And it was on this mountain Peter, James, and John were treated to a fantastic preview of coming attractions. Peter would refer back to it later. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter said, We did not cleverly devise or follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it. For we received, he received honor and glory from God the Father. Such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Peter's remembering back to the scene of the transfiguration. And Peter writes, We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And there on that mountain, gang, the Bible tells us Jesus was transfigured. The word transfigured there in the Greek is metaphor metaphor No, metamorpho. It's where we get our word metamorphosis. That's a little easier to say. Metamorpho. It literally means a physical transformation that begins on the inside and radiates out. And that's what happened. And it's hard for us even to imagine that moment when that took place. When Jesus' previous glory and His future glory suddenly was seen. Remember, Peter had made the confession of the Christ and now he gets to see Jesus as he really is. He gets a taste, a preview of the grandeur of Jesus Christ. And there on the mountain, this is mind-blowing, were Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. The lawgiver and the great prophet of Israel. John 1.17 says the law was given through Moses and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Malachi 4.5 says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so here are Peter, James, and John. And this must have just freaked them out. In fact, I would bet that, that this moment, this scene, freaked them out more than anything they had seen Jesus do yet. Even the ghost walk on the Sea of Galilee in the night, in the storm. That was freaky. But he wasn't glowing. And now... He just begins to glow in this brilliant light and suddenly there's Elijah and there's Moses. How did Peter know it was Moses and Elijah? He'd never seen them before. I'll tell you something, it answers the question people have asked, will we recognize each other in heaven? Yes, we will. Not because we've seen each other physically, but because we know each other spiritually. Let it be an encouragement in our relationships and how we spend time with each other that as we get to know each other, our spirits are connecting in such a way that we will have instantaneous recognition in heaven. And Peter, he just recognizes, it's Moses, it's Elijah, I know it. Why? From the picture books? No, I just know my spirit recognizes their spirit. And they're up there and they're talking, and Peter and James and John had opportunity to listen in, and we get a, a little taste of what they were talking about. It's over in the book of Luke, chapter 9, verse 31, that says they were speaking of His departure, which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they're on the mountain. Elijah and Moses are talking to Jesus about His crucifixion. They're talking to Him about His death. Again, after Peter made that great confession, do you see where this all immediately turned? It turned to the cross. Even the conversation Elijah and Moses are having was about the cross. Now, speaking of death, both Moses and Elijah themselves had auspicious endings to their lives. How did Moses die? Well, he died 
full of years. In fact, the Bible indicates he was as sharp as a tack. His eye was not dimmed. He still had all of his vim and vigor about him, but he was an old man and he died full of years. He was buried by the Lord outside of the promised land. Deuteronomy 34.5 says, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. How cool would that be to have God take care of your burial? The only man in history that we ever know that God stepped in and said, I'll dig the grave. I'll lay this body to rest. And he did it in a place where no one would ever know, which is an interesting spiritual fact because Jude chapter 9 gives us some insight into an argument between the archangel Michael and Satan. It says they were arguing over the body of Moses. It's one of those verses that's really fun when you're studying the book of Jude to point out and just kind of let it hang there because for all of us we think, what in the world is this about? I can only guess that this argument over the body of Moses, that this bizarre argument, was because the Lord had a future plan for the body. Satan wanted to get his hands on Moses' body. Because if he could, he could mess up something that the Lord wanted to do at a time yet future. Hold that thought. How did Elijah die? He didn't. He didn't. He rode the chariot. Fiery chariot. He rode straight up to heaven. He is a picture of the rapture gang, the rapture of the church. I don't know that we'll all have fiery chariots. That'd be cool. But he was caught up and translated into heaven. Elijah never did die. Second Kings chapter 2 tells that story. And this is in part why I believe the two witnesses talked about in Revelation chapter 11 will be Moses and Elijah. Moses, because his body was kept in a very specific place, God would need it again in the future. And Elijah, because his body never died. And there's more inference and implication there in Revelation 11. I encourage you to study that and look at it. That make me think it's got to be Moses and Elijah who both will come back in the tribulation and will be preaching out of Jerusalem which is just going to freak out the whole news world. Can you imagine all the cameras and the media lined up 24-7 just watching these two guys preach? I think it's going to happen. Now, I tell you all that to say this, that I mentioned before that this verse at the end of chapter 16 was partially fulfilled. Again, verse 28 back in 16 says, There are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His glory. And the very next thing that happens is Peter, James, and John see Jesus in all His glory. So they see what Jesus promised that they would see. However, there's more to it than just that. Because Jesus made a similar statement to verse 28 of chapter 16, after His resurrection, I'll read it to you, it's in John chapter 21, and verse 18, He's speaking to Peter and He says, Truly I say to you, when you were younger, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted to. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. And John tells us, this He said, signifying what kind of death, by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he turned to him and he said, follow me. Now Peter, verse 20 of John 21, turned around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. We know that's John. He saw him following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? 
And so Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? Because the Lord has just revealed to Peter, you're going to end up dying in a way that you don't want to. What about John? (laughs) What's going to happen with him? And Jesus told him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Great words. If Jesus wants to do something with somebody else, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me, Jesus said. I I got convicted of this. I was listening to uh, Skip Heitzig. I don't know if any of you listen to Pastor Skip. He's a great Bible teacher. He's one of my favorites. And I was listening to his teaching this past week. And he was talking about the opportunity that he had had to speak in several African countries and to go to several retreats and speak there. And I was thinking, man... And I actually said this out loud. I'm driving the car, listening to him on the radio, and I said out loud, Lord, I'd like to do that. How come I never get to... And then I was immediately checked in my spirit. I, I, how come I don't get to do what other guys get to do? I can hear Jesus say, What is that to you? You follow me. You follow me where I have you, what I have you doing. Stop looking at other believers and what I have them doing. Stop comparing your life to other people. You follow me. I don't care what anybody else is doing. You follow me. You follow me. Well, what's interesting is he says about John, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? But John had to die. I mean, he's not still around now. So what's the deal with that? Well, on over a little bit further, we realize that 60 years after John saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, clothes as white as light, face shining like the sun, we know this last surviving apostle, while on the island of Patmos, exiled there, got to see Jesus again, coming in his kingdom. The whole story. It's the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, verse 12, John writes, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a robe reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like, and I can only imagine this, the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in its strength. And John writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Because to see God is to experience death. No man has seen God without dying. I shared when we studied Revelation, I think John did die right there. I think he flatlined and hit the ground, and Jesus raised him back up. He placed his right hand on me, John wrote, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. And John saw it all. He saw Jesus glorified on the mountain. He would later see Jesus in His full glorified resurrected state. What an amazing description we have there in Revelation 1. And further over in Revelation chapter 19. Yeah, we got time. Revelation chapter 19. Let me just read one more thing to you. John saw. He said, I saw heaven open. Verse 11. And behold, on a white horse, he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. There's a reason I'm going here tonight. Stick with me. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written on himself, which no one knows except himself. 
He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. From His mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it He may strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron, and He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in heaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and all their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse, and against his army. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. John saw it all. He saw it. Not only Jesus glorified after his resurrection, but Jesus coming in all His glory. Somehow, some way, the Lord transported John to that time yet future when Jesus would come back in His glorious attire for the second coming and the reign. John saw it. And he wrote about it that we might see it too. Now, back on the mount. Mount Hermon, the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, who has so far confessed Christ and rebuked Christ, once again uses his teeth to measure his shoe size. Verse 8, or verse 4. Peter then said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up! Do not be afraid. Watch this. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus Himself alone. Peter still has a few things to learn. The primary one of which is Jesus Himself alone. Peter's still getting off track. Still getting unaligned. He needs realignment. He needs Jesus Himself alone. And even John, and this is why I read to you from Revelation, even John would need that realignment 60 years after this time. 60 years later, John would need to get realigned again. Revelation 19, verse 9, the angel was talking to John and said, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And John writes, Then I fell at his feet to worship him. No, John, don't you get it? John, at this point, is an old man in his 90s, possibly over 100. And he still sees this angel and he's so impressed he falls down to worship the angel. John, don't you get it yet? He said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And then he says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spiritual... is the spirit of prophecy. 
The testimony of Jesus is what it's all about, John. Why am I pointing out that? Because being aligned to Jesus is a daily occurrence. Whether you're 5 years old or 50 years old or 70 years old, every day we need to be realigned with Jesus. Even the greatest of us, the greatest of the living, the last living apostle, still needed alignment. Peter, at the end of his life, needed alignment. We all need to be aligned with Jesus on a daily basis. No matter who we are, no matter how long we've walked with Him. Well, in verse 9, it says, As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And His disciples asked Him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first. And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. This has confused a lot of people. Elijah has already come and Elijah is going to come. What exactly does this mean? Before the birth of John the Baptist, you may recall an angel was sent to John's father, Zacharias. And the angel came to him and he said in Luke 1.17 that your son John will go before him in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And indeed, John had that. John, as the forerunner of Jesus, had the spirit and the power of Elijah. He had a ministry that was like that of Elijah's, even though he wasn't Elijah. And the truth is, had the Jewish people accepted Jesus, had they accepted first John and then Jesus, then John would have slid into that role of the Elijah figure coming before Jesus. So in a way, he was Elijah, come before Jesus. At the same time, God knew that they would reject John. God knew that they would reject Jesus. And so God's plan continues on. Elijah, listen, Elijah will come. Not in the person of John the Baptist, but Elijah himself. Will, I believe, come before the great and glorious day of the Lord, as Malachi prophesied. Now, we're going to stop there in chapter 17 for tonight, but before we leave, I want to tell you just one more thing. Go back to the first three verses of Matthew 17. The Bible tells us six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. The transfiguration of Jesus Christ, as detailed by Matthew, gives us an awesome preview of coming attractions in more ways than one. This, if you look at it, is more than simply Jesus glorified. This is a dispensational picture, the way Matthew lays this out and the way it happened. It is a dispensational picture. What do you mean by that? It's a future picture. Notice something here. Verse 1 begins with three words. Six days later. Now that's important. It's not just giving us a timestamp on where they were or what they were doing. Matthew wanted us to know, after the confession, six days passed... And they went up the mountain and Jesus suddenly was seen in His glorified state. Six days later. What biblically happens after six days? Sabbath. Rest. Sabbath rest of God. 
In Genesis, God created for six days. He rested on the seventh. In the law, He commanded His people, keep the Sabbath day. That day of rest, make it holy because I created the world in six days and on the seventh I rested. So it is with you. Keep that Sabbath. And my friends, in the millennial kingdom, this world will have rest. Now we're right on the cusp of things here, but I absolutely believe this. I believe the world is 6,000 years old. I'm one of those literalists who just takes the Bible at its word. And I think the world is 6,000 years old and we are on the cusp of the 7,000 year, the seventh day, the day of rest. And I believe that millennial kingdom is fast approaching. It will soon be upon us. Six days. In the transfiguration, after six days, we see Jesus coming in His kingdom, which is exactly what happens after six days and the seventh day, the Sabbath, the millennial kingdom begins. You really think we're that close? I think we're in the twilight of the sixth day. Leading into the seventh day, that Sabbath for the whole entire world. Isaiah writes about it. He says, It will come about that in the last days, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations, oh, they'll stream into it. Many peoples will come and say, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He'll judge between nations. He'll render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Listen to this good news. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Rest is coming. Peace is upon us. It's close. After six days. On the seventh when Jesus is glorified. Furthermore, we see in verse 2, obviously, Jesus in this glorified, revelatory state. That's the the key to this whole picture. But also in verse 3, we see Moses and we see Elijah. Why these two guys? Why these two? Moses' gang is a picture, if you will, it's a picture of those who have died in faith, but will be raised up in glorified bodies. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul talks about this. Those who have died will precede us who are alive at the time of the rapture. They will be raised up. Their bodies raised up. Their spirits reunified and glorified with their bodies instantaneously. It will be fantastic. And Moses pictures that for us. What does Elijah picture? Those of us who are alive at the coming of Christ and are caught up and are raptured. But who else is present? Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John are part of this picture as well. At that time, gang, Peter, James, and John would not be representatives of the church. The church hadn't happened yet. They were just Jews. And so there is a picture here in these three guys who I believe represent Israel who will be restored to the Lord in the latter days to enter into the blessing of the promised kingdom. There's a lot of theology here. A lot of dispensational doctrine and discussion. But why was it that Jesus invited Peter, James, and John to come with Him to go up the mountain? Why then? To what end did it actually serve in that time and place? I mean, really, was He just showing off? Guys, watch what I can do. I mean, you can imagine 12 guys and Jesus wandering around together and and playing some games and having some fun. It's far more than that. Hear me on this. By far, the greatest encouragement of the Christian walk 
is a clear vision from the Lord of where we're going. That's the greatest encouragement, the greatest word of peace, of hope that I can give you is where we're going. Now, someone might say, well, wait a minute, Rick. You said earlier we don't have any idea where we're going and we're like the wind, just blowing to and fro. Oh yeah, day to day. That's true. But we know the end game. We know the final arrival. We know the destination. We know where we're going to end up. And the Mount of Transfiguration, gang, it's the Mount of Encouragement. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up there to show them, look, you're going to go through hell on this earth, but watch. I'm going to show you something that's going to get you through. I'm going to show you the coming kingdom. I'm going to show you the coming king. And I guarantee you that it got Peter and James and John through some tough times. I guarantee you when they were hurting, when they were persecuted, when they were being whipped, when they were being imprisoned, that they would think back to Jesus glorified and know we didn't make this up. I guarantee it because Peter said it. He said, we didn't follow cleverly, cleverly devised tales. We didn't make this up. We're not smart enough to make this up. We saw Him. We are eyewitnesses of His majesty, Peter said. It is the mountain of encouragement. Be encouraged, gang. No matter what's happening in your life, be encouraged because He's coming. He's coming. And no matter how bad it gets here, we're going there. And nothing else matters. Revelation 19, 21, and 22. Three times the angel tells John, write down these words because they are faithful and true. And John wrote them down and we read them. And we get to, through their eyes, witness this glory, witness this coming King in His kingdom. The greatest encouragement we as believers have. We know the end game. We know where we're going. And our glorified King Jesus is on His way. And Jesus, we pray, come quickly, Lord. We pray that You will fill up our hearts with longing to see You again. A longing that is so great that we can deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow You because we see You. That these decisions that we feel are so big and so difficult and so hand-wrenching, Lord, we see You glorified. And because of that, we can face anything. We can take any rejection. And so I pray, Jesus, keep our eyes fixed on You. Remind us day in and day out as we realign to Your Word, remind us of this vision that we see You as our coming King. And through seeing You, Lord, give us the strength to handle everything until You come. Come quickly. In Jesus' name, Amen.